Welcome back to Mafia. And in this Audio Boom original podcast series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and those who are actually there. Previously on Mafia. His picture's on page one of newspapers. His name is all over TV. He's, uh, he's a headline figure. John Gotti. The Dapper Don was a brutal and ambitious young thug who defied the rules of the Cosa Nostra to seize control of one of the most powerful criminal empires in America, the Gambino family. He survived the wrath of the other families and made a mockery of the law, walking free from court time and again. This is Mafia. In January 1990, Ronald Goldstock, head of the New York State Organized Crime Task Force, believed that one of his surveillance bugs had recorded Gotti ordering a shooting. Selwyn Rabb is the author of the book Five Families. One of the agencies run the Organized Crime uh, Task Force, which, ran, which was a state agency involved in trying to uproot organized crime in New York, uh, had gotten a bug into uh, the Bergen uh, Club, and they had heard Gotti shortly after he became the boss in early 1986, discussing that he did an attack on a carpenter union leader. This union leader had been so dumb, uh, he didn't know uh, that the, a restaurant he was trying to organize that was being renovated or built uh, was really owned by a Gambino crime figure. And he tried to shake down the uh, Gambino uh, crime figure who ran this restaurant, and of course they told him to get the hell out of here. So the union leader then, then ordered his, uh, his uh, flunkies to vandalize the place to wreck it. When Gotti heard about this, he said, he, now Gotti's the boss. He has to show how powerful he is. Nobody can get away with this. So he ordered that there be, a, that there be not a hit, but someone that they would uh, assault or shoot without killing this union leader. And he got a group that worked for the Gambino family known as the Westies. It was a West Side, sort of a real low-level gang, violent criminals, not mafiosi, Irish hoods on Manhattan's West Side, to carry out this assignment. The union leader was shot four times in the back, but survived. For Gotti, it was mission accomplished, and message delivered. The only problem was that this bug heard uh, Gotti ordering the uh, attack on the union leader. Uh, the head of the unit that ran the organized crime uh, task force, a very uh, important figure by the name of Ronald Goldstock, offered this both to the uh, U.S. attorneys in uh, Manhattan, the U.S. attorneys in Brooklyn, and they thought the evidence was too weak. They didn't want to go after a case like that in which uh, Gotti might get a third victory. But in any event, the o OCTF, the organized crime task force, uh, convinced the Manhattan DA, Robert Morgenthau, to bring the case. So they brought this assault case against Gotti. In the courtroom, witnesses testified that Gotti had ordered the shootings, backing up the wiretap recording. Goldstock was convinced that he had the evidence he needed to finally take Gotti down. My sense was everybody in the courtroom who was watching the case and how it went in believed there was going to be a conviction. But the quality of the recordings placed serious doubt on the solidity of the case. Once again, Gotti was acquitted. We, we were stunned by the uh, acquittal of Gotti. We did not believe that that could have happened. 
Lo and behold, Gotti walked again. Uh, the claim by the defense was that the tapes were difficult to hear. Now, I heard the tapes, and I don't think it was difficult to hear. There was no doubt Gotti was uh, ordering and engineering another attack. Uh, also, the witness against Gotti were all turncoats, especially the key witness, and uh, they were lacerated by Gotti's lawyers because their records were even worse than Gotti's records. They were all murderers, uh, uh, horrendous, violent criminals. Hard to have any faith in him. So Gotti walked, but again, Gotti had another insurance policy. It turned out one of the police officers or detectives that was working for the DA's office and guarding the jury was on Gotti's payroll. They had bribed another law enforcement official or investigator. So Gotti had some inside information about what Gotti's lawyers did or the Gotti defense team did about what was going on with the defense. They even had the name of some potential jurors who might be approached. So we never quite know whether or not that jury was fixed. So again, Gotti's got three big victories, and he has uh, supporters cheering him when he walks out of the courtroom this time, third time in about two years, and he's a victor. Now the media gave him a new nickname, the Teflon Don, because no charges ever stuck. There was actually street parties. Uh, people came out and cheered him. So here you have this uh, ignoble figure, this cruel, vicious killer who's looked upon in some way as a hero. It's a terrifying and it's a terrible indictment, not just of the media, but also of this kind of underlying vicarious kick uh, the public gets out of figures like John Gotti. They wanted to see something something like Vito Corleone or Jesse James. And he, he saw that. He milked it for all he could milk it for. He was cast as this dapper Don, this Teflon Don. It was, it was a gloss on him he certainly didn't deserve. He was just a thug. We'll be back after a short break. Bruce Moe was the head of the FBI's Gambino squad, one of five teams established to tackle each of New York's five organized crime families. The Gambino squad, C-16 in Queens, was tasked with the John Gotti case. And so I was the supervisor of the squad. The case was assigned to a brilliant agent named George Gabriel, and we developed a game plan to go after John Gotti. And... Uh, our goal was not just to convict John Gotti, but to convict John Gotti, the administration of the family, and those prominent captains that are making all the money and doing all the work in the family. For the past four years, Bruce Moe's team of agents had been carrying out painstaking surveillance work and building a network of informants. When we were tasked with this investigation, our bosses says, look, take all the time you want, whether it be one year, five years. When you bring down the case, make sure it's a strong one and the convictions will be sustained. So those was our mandate. And so our motto was patience and perseverance. Take all the time you want and just stick at it through thick or thin. Slowly, Moe's team made contact with a wide range of people connected to the Gambino family. A lot of people out there that looked like they were regular, undiluted wise guys who were actually informants for the FBI. The careful surveillance was building a detailed picture of Gotti's habits and operation. What he liked to do, he had a pretty much, thank God, a very uh, strict regimen, a very strict routine. 
Every day he'd sleep in to one or two o'clock in the afternoon. The driver would pick him up and he'd first drive to the Burger Hunt and Fish Club in Queens where he would uh, meet with some of his crew, shower, shave, get a haircut, and then around 4.30, this is Monday through Friday, he'd be picked up there and driven into the city to the Ravenite Social Club located at 247 Mulberry Street, New York. Moe ordered his men to keep a watch on the club round the clock, but it wasn't easy. In order to conduct the surveillances down the Ravenite, you know, this is Little Italy, it's a very hard place to park cars, to conduct surveillance without being uh, discovered. We obtained a surveillance plant at the corner of Houston and Mulberry Street on the sixth floor. There's a new condominium. Uh, we sent in two undercover agents, we were able to secure a lease for the place. Our technical people through Jim Calstrom installed a $100,000 video camera with night photography capability. And we conducted surveillances from the plant from 88 until we shut it down in the 90s. They had a clear shot right down Mulberry Street to the club. Jim Calstrom's team now had a direct view of the door to the Ravenite. I at that time was the supervisor of the technical operations. After a period of time, you understand what his day, daily routine is. You understand where he comes and goes. You understand who meets him on what occasions. And you also find out, you know, because he's the leader of a particular group, where does he meet with these folks? Where does he give them their instructions? Where does he get reports back? Just like a company, but in this case, a criminal company. As Kallstrom, Moe and their teams began to study the hours of footage, they discovered something remarkable. The ever-confident Gotti was openly running his organization from the Ravenite Social Club. And from Monday through Friday, John Gotti would hold court at this club five nights a week. And as a result of him being there, all the family, captains, and soldiers would come there to meet with John Gotti and discuss business with him. So five nights a week, from Monday through Friday, most of the captains of the Gambina family would come down to Mulberry Street to meet with John at the Ravenite Club. If the captains came, many of their soldiers came. People from out of town would come. So over the course of the week, you would see 20 captains at the Gambina family meeting with John Gotti. Of course, every night, the underboss, at the time, Frank Locasio, the Castiglieri, Sammy Gravano, would also be there. So over the course of the week, you'd see a good share of the Gambina family meeting with John Gotti. He never seemed to understand he was running a secret organization, an underground criminal outfit. And he demands that at least once a week, his soldiers or his capos or union leaders, all of these courtiers have to show up and kiss his ring like he's the Pope. You know, the uh, surveillance of the Ravenite were a godsend for law enforcement because what Gotti forgot is La Casa Nostra is supposed to be a secret society. They're not supposed to meet in public. They're supposed to be clandestine. They normally use safe houses. They'll meet in hospital cafeterias. They'll meet late at night. Here John Gotti in broad daylight is meeting with over 100 members of the Gambino family, 20 captains on a regular basis. You're not supposed to do this. And he gives Bruce Mao and the FBI incredible opportunities to unearth evidence that only a fool would hand over to them. They could photograph everybody going in and out of the Ravenite. They find out people they didn't know were in any way connected, union leaders, or, or politicians, mobsters from, uh, from regions of New York that were not known as Gambino members. They get a, Gotti hands them 
a who's who. Who's who in the mob? Who's who in the Gambino family? A rogue gallery uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a clear plate. Initially, we recorded those meetings where John was going inside, and then he did these walk talks where he'd take a long walk around the block with Gravano or Locasio or other captains. And unfortunately, at the time, we didn't have the capability to monitor those conversations. We didn't have the, the high-tech parabolic mics or other sophisticated electronic equipment. But photos and video from outside the club wouldn't be enough to make a case against Gotti. They needed to hear what was going on inside. We realized that our best chance for success was to develop electronic surveillance, i.e. put a bug somewhere where Gotti's meeting to capture those conversations, criminal in nature, then play those conversations in court where we're using Gotti and his associates as witnesses. So our first goal was to do, develop electronic surveillance. The second goal was to develop as an informant or a cooperative witness somebody in Gotti's inner circle to explain what the conversations mean and to fill in all the blanks. So those are our two goals. We learned from the informants that the club was fairly small. It consisted of two rooms. There's like a front reception area where they had a cappuccino machine and a soda machine. The back was a larger room and there's a large table there where John Gotti would sit and there he'd meet with his underboss Consigliere and he would talk business in that back room. So we applied for an application for electronic surveillance to put a bug at that table where John was holding court to capture those conversations. So in the spring of 88 we got approval from the judge in the Southern District to break into the club install a bug, and then monitor those conversations at that table. Mo called in the FBI's head of electronic surveillance, Jim Kallstrom, to get a device into the club. I mean, this John Gotti case had been going on for years. It had been the subject of front page stories in the New York newspapers. And it wasn't out of a grudge that we wanted to do this. It was important that the rule of law prevail here. It was important that someone who was a thug, a killer, you know, not get away with this. But this would not be an easy assignment. And uh, I don't know if you've driven down Mulberry Street in New York, a very close environment, very narrow street, three, four level places on both sides. You have no control of who's looking out windows. A lot of street traffic, a lot of mobsters living there, coming and going. You know, so to make an entry into a building covertly, of course, you have the right time. You've got to know that it's not occupied. And you've got to get through whatever internal protections they have. And you've got to not be seen uh, going into a building by someone looking through a dark window at night where you have no knowledge that that could be taking place. Calstrom's people are professional burglars, they're lockpicks. They can break through locks and go through alarms. They can break into safes, that's what they do. And it was a heroic effort by our tech guys to break into the club because Mulberry Street is all Italian neighborhood. Everybody knows everybody, they don't trust strangers. And you're basically breaking into somebody's premises at the risk of uh, retribution. They could be shot or killed going in there. The dog, God knows, so. There's always a time pressure because you've got surveillance on the people that belong there if they're not in there. You know, 
you don't just say, okay, they left. You know where they are. You know if they're gonna come back in two minutes. You know that they're in Brooklyn or you know that they're around the corner. So, and you know people walking down the street, you can see what's going on. I mean, so you really have a whole lot of things have to come together, you know, to get that opportunity to actually move. And there's never a time when, when the uh, risk is zero, never. They broke into the club, they got through the lock, they disabled an alarm system, and they were to install a bug in the club without being detected. And of course, then you have to put the device in. You have to figure out how it's gonna work, where it's gonna be hidden, how it's gonna be disguised, how it's gonna transmit, and then you have to sit back and hope that you're right. But even with the bugs in place, the FBI couldn't get the evidence they needed. They first installed the bug and then we're starting to monitor the conversations. But there's a lot of background noise in the club. Uh, there's a soda machine, espresso machine, bathroom, toilet flushing. So there was a lot of uh, tower babble talk. Really hard to discern what they were talking about. You couldn't hear yourself talk in the Ravenite Social Club. Extremely noisy. Music played, all on purpose to, to stop any microphone. And the tech guys went in several times. Uh, we put a bug below the table, we put a bug above the table, in the wall, and this had five bugs on this one table. But the trouble is you have too many people in the small pace and too much background noise, and we just couldn't get good, clear conversation. We knew they were talking about stuff, but it was pretty much indecipherable. We brought in tech guys from Washington to try to filter out all the background noise, but it just didn't work out. They could make out Gotti's voice, but they couldn't decipher a word he was saying. We tried this off and on through all of 1988, and in late 88, we finally shut down and said, look, uh, this is not working. Let's regroup and try something else. So, and that was a very discouraging time for us because we were so close, but yet so far, we're right there. We're watching these guys go in the club. We know he's talking business there. We see all these walk talks. We know they're talking about running a crime family, but yet we couldn't monitor these conversations. It seemed they'd hit a dead end after the break. What would you think if you got a package in the mail a couple of weeks before Christmas? Early present, right? Well, that's what Wayne Gravett thought when a delivery arrived at his house. Inside, a wrapped gift and letter said, have a Merry Christmas, and may you never have to buy another flashlight. But when he turned on the flashlight, it exploded, killing him instantly, right in front of his wife and son. More than 20 years later, there have been no arrests in the case. But David Ridgen wants to change that. He's the host of the award-winning podcast, Someone Knows Something. And this season, he wants to find out who wanted Wayne dead and why. Subscribe to Someone Knows Something podcast at cbc.ca slash sks or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We decided let's go regroup and maybe there's another place where he's doing business. So in 1989, uh, we followed Frank Locasio around, we followed Sammy Gravano around. Maybe there's a safe house they were meeting during the day, which we didn't know about, or some other location where he was meeting these people to run a crime family. But as they say, all roads were leading back to the Ravenite, and we realized we were in the right spot. And uh, it was tough for the morale of the squad around this time. 
you know, morale was getting a little bit low because we were working so hard in all these Title threes. We were getting very little show for it. A lot of people for the first time were saying, you'll never get him. He's a Teflon Don. He's untouchable. You're wasting your time. But uh, our motto was patience and perseverance, and we knew that we just have to keep trying and look for a break, and good things will happen. But as Moe's team reanalyzed the recordings, they discovered that Gotti's voice would often disappear for long periods of time when the surveillance showed he was still inside the club. In uh, the summer of 89, we learned from the informant that he was inside the club, and we saw John Gotti get out of the table with Tommy Gambino and go out the back door. And there's a hallway back there, and they were gone for 10 minutes. They came back in. Prior to that, we knew there was a back door to the club. We had a good diagram. We thought it was dead bolted shut. You couldn't go in or out of that. We learned later that was their egress from the club that we couldn't see from the street. A few weeks later, this informant was also in the club and he saw Gotti, Gravano, and Locasio get up from their table, go out that back door, and they were gone for like an hour and a half. Re-examining the videotapes of the club's exterior led to a dramatic breakthrough. And here's really the power of surveillance. All of a sudden, we, tried, we started to figure out that there was a certain woman who would leave almost like clockwork when certain events took place. The FBI now discovered that there was an internal staircase leading from the club to the apartments above. And apartment 10 was occupied by the widow of a Gambino soldier by the name of Mike Sorelli. And what they would do, they would tell her, hey, uh, we need to use your apartment for an hour or so. She'd go to the neighbor, watch TV. Gotti and his minions would go up there and have their administration meetings in her living room. So that was the break that we needed. And I remember Bruce Mao calling me and saying, we had the, uh, the Eureka location. And that woman turned out to be the person that had the apartment. And unbeknownst to us prior, there was an internal stairwell to get to her apartment from the Ravenite Social Club. So based on that, uh, we put together another application for electronic surveillance for, again, the club, put a bug in the hallway right behind the club and for apartment number 10. So that was signed in September of uh, 1989 in the Southern District. Uh, we activated the mic in the club just to determine when Gotti was there and the other targets of the surveillance. A few weeks later, our tech guides went in, we were able to put a mic in the hallway, which is a very difficult task because it's a hallway to apartment building, plaster walls, very little places to hide a mic, but they put a mic in there. But the apartment presented even more of a challenge than the club itself. Whole nother ball game to get in there. Because you have a widow living there 24 hours, seven days a week, and you have to get into her apartment. So we waited and waited, and we finally learned that on Thanksgiving weekend that Mrs. Sorelli was gonna go away to visit some relatives. So on our videotape, we saw her leave the apartment building on the night of Thanksgiving Eve. And a couple days later, our tech guys went in and put the bug in apartment number 10. And that's when the waiting started. As weeks passed without results, Moe's team began to fear the worst. Now we had three mics going, and John Gotti was coming to the club. He went in the hallway a few times, but he wasn't going upstairs. And you always wonder, did they uh, discover something? Did they make the tech guys? Did they leave a little piece of wire behind? You know, has it been compromised? Finally, one late November evening, the team's patience was rewarded. But it wasn't until uh, 
the night of November 30, 1989, where John Gotti's at the club with Gravano and Ocasio, and we're monitoring him at the club mic. We heard him open the back door, we get up from their tables, we switch to the hallway mic, and the agent there monitoring those conversations, hears him walking in the hallway, hears him going up the stairs, so we turn on the mic for apartment number 10, and sure enough, they open the door, and there they are in apartment number 10, talking loud and clear. And when they went in, they first turned on the radio because they used that to blank out their conversations. And John said, turn the friggin' thing off. I can't hear what you're saying. So they turned off the radio and they were talking there loud and clear. And one thing we didn't know at the time was that John Gotti's deaf in one ear. So they couldn't whisper. They had to talk like we're talking now loud and clear. We sort of had the coup de grace, you know, the, the golden fleece, the Eureka moment. You know, when we had him in this little quiet little apartment above the Ravenite, you know, small little couple hundred square feet apartment, sitting close to each other, and right there is our microphone. They felt very scared in this little apartment up there, so they talk in a normal tone of voice, and John Gotti's very loud mouth, so he starts talking, and you can't miss what he's saying. And what Gotti was saying was explosive. Every organized crime case, you know, you have to be lucky. I always say you make your own breaks. And right before that night, there was a show on TV where they reenacted the homicide of Paul Castellano and Tommy Bellotti. And one of these mutts saw the show and they started talking about the night of December 16, 1985. So Gotti, Gravano, Lacasio get all worked up talking about Nazabik, which is their name for Big Nose, Paul Castellano, how much they hated him, how much they hated Bellotti. They reenacted all the stuff about dispute about the tapes, the maid, the ascension of the family, and basically they admitted to plotting and killing Castellano and Bellotti. So here's Gotti, who warns everybody not to talk on the uh, peril of death if they're ever heard picked up on eavesdropping. He goes up there and he's talking openly. You know, Gotti in his own words, and he was a very, very vociferous person. He would, he would, in every meeting, he would recap prior meetings. He would go over stuff over and over again. He would talk about who he's killed in the past. He would talk about his attorney was a scumbag, and he liked to get rid of him. He would talk about everything over and over again. So it wasn't like, what did he say? If you don't, didn't get it the first time, just wait a few minutes, you'd get it again. So he was really the perfect person, you know, to actually record. Ever since John Gleason had failed to put Gotti away in his racketeering case almost four years earlier, the young prosecutor had been waiting for just this kind of evidence. The, my first exposure to the uh, Ravenite bug was a transcript that, Bru that Bruce and George Gabriel gave me from the December 12th, 1989 tape where John talks about whacking DB, Robert DiBernardo. Um, he talks about whacking Louis Melito. A rush of appreciation for what the Gambino squad did. It was no uh, mean feat to figure out where this guy would have his private conversations and to get a listening device in there. So my first, my first and overwhelming impression was how great is this that they managed to accomplish this to get this guy's voice on tape? And he's giving the FBI this incredible 
a cornucopia of evidence. So he handed it to them. He became unvigilant, uh, loose-tongued. And uh, it, was the, uh, it was what Mao had been waiting for for several years. And uh, Gotti handed it to him on a silver platter. All told, we monitored a total of five conversations, maybe seven and a half hours of tape, all told. But they were like uh, the top 40 hits. And we were really excited. I mean, really excited after all these years of not getting anything really very useful. And we knew we were off to the races. We knew we were going to have, at a bare minimum, a really good case. I mean, we didn't know how good it was going to become, but we knew we weren't banging our heads against the wall anymore, and uh, we were going to have a great case. For Gleason, the tapes were a fascinating insight into the character of his longtime nemesis. And it just confirmed what we already knew about him, which is he wasn't really that smart. He wasn't that patient. He was a thug. He couldn't quite figure out, you know, he had become boss of a family that was much more sophisticated in its criminal activity than he had been. He was a loan shark and a gambler, and his crew was into drug dealing. Now he's in charge of a crime family that's into construction, um, card, garbage carting, the piers, the garment industry. It's sophisticated stuff. He wasn't a sophisticated guy. So he didn't know if the people around him were ripping him off or not. And being a treacherous guy himself, he assumed they were. So he was constantly um, suspicious of the people around him, suspicious of Sammy Gravano. He wasn't smart enough to figure out who was loyal to him and who wasn't. And we had a sense that this was the person he was from the first case. He was not. He was not an elegant guy, he was not a smart guy, he was not an attractive guy in any way, um, except maybe he was handsome and he had nice clothes. He was a thug and we knew it and we felt great because we felt we already had him on the hook. Even long before we indicted him, we were feeling pretty good about what we had. The fun part of this, and there were a lot of fun parts of this, but the fun part of it at the time was this, you know, we only had about six hours of apartment conversations, and there were a lot, there's a lot of free association going on. They were referring to conversations they had in the past, and we didn't always have the context. So the fun part was for us to figure out, you know, what exactly are they talking about? You know, and some of it was obvious. January, January 24th of 1990, they talked about killing Corky Vistola. So there, we knew that we had that predicate act and we had it based on the tape alone. But there were all these other things they talked about. You know, they talked about a three-family squabble over a fence. And we thought, because we're prosecutors, that the fence was somebody who was helping them get rid of stolen property. That's the, ling that's the jargon in the street for somebody who holds the property. And it turned out, it took us like a year to figure this out, it turned out they were literally talking about somebody's backyard fence. Why one wise guy living next to another and his fence was too high. And here was this like um, big high level meeting over a fence and it was just an innocent, a non-criminal dispute. In between were all these references to, uh, to what we thought were crimes or corrupt labor racketeering relationships. And our job, me and the prosecutors who worked with me, and the agents on the Gambino squad was to divide them up. We would, I called them episodes. 
is a potential criminal episode. We will look at this. We think we have a hypothesis as to what they're talking about. We assign it to an agent on the squad, an assistant U.S. attorney in my organized crime section, and work it, figure it out. You know, serve grand jury subpoenas. We were careful with the grand jury subpoenas while the bug was up. We tended to do this later that year in the summer. But we worked all those bits and scraps of uh, conversation to try to develop them into racketeering acts if they were, in fact, crimes that they were talking about. But that was the fun part as an investigator. You know, we were helping the, the Gambino squad investigate, and we were making predicate acts. We didn't know where we were going on some of them. You know, one turned out to be about a wooden fence in a backyard. But others turned into crimes that we charged in the indictment. But having tried and failed to convict Gotti before, Gleason knew that the tapes alone would not be enough. By then, I had tried a bunch of cases. And you immediately start to think about the vulnerability of the case, you know, and, and how if you present this tape, you know, a tape case is a one-dimensional case. You just got the words on the tape. So you start to think of how a defense can be built around it and what you're going to do in anticipation of that to, um, to, to defeat the defense, you know, what you're going to do other than the tape itself to make your case better. That was, my, that was my, once I got the admiration of the Bureau out of the way, I started thinking like, well, I'm going to be standing in front of a jury someday, telling them they should convict him of a murder based on this statement. What is Bruce Cutler or Jerry Shargell or whoever it's going to be? What are they going to say in telling the jury they shouldn't? That's how I was approaching it. On December 11th, 1990, the FBI arrested John Gotti and his right-hand man, underboss Sammy the Bull Gravano, for the murders he'd discussed on the tapes. At the time of the arrest, Gotti was a normal braggadocio self. He was cocky, confident, you know, smiling. We arrest him on December 11th. We have a detention hearing a couple of days later, at which we played for the judge um, greatest hits from our Ravenite bug, from the apartment bug about murders, about obstruction, about Sammy going on the lam if John got arrested, all the things that would relate to whether he should get bail, risk of flight, danger to the community. And we played those tapes. We gave out transcripts and we played the tapes. And when he came through the door from the marshal's pens, I saw him. There was no love lost between us from that first case. We had a very acrimonious relationship from the first case. So it's not like he nodded hello to me or anything. He came in, he didn't know what was coming. He didn't know those tapes were coming. And he sat down, it didn't take long. And we gave the transcript to the judge, we had given it to him earlier, played the tapes. You could tell from looking at the faces of the three defendants that they knew right away what we already knew, which was we had a great case. We had great tapes that were gonna convict him. And he was upset, um, and I enjoyed every moment of it. One of the FBI's recordings had caught Gotti bad-mouthing Gravano. Sammy knew there was something bad in those tapes, not just for them getting convicted, but something bad in terms of his relationship with John Gotti. But he didn't know what it was. Gravano approached the FBI behind his boss's back, 
demanding to hear the tapes. Uh, he didn't hear them until we whisked him out of the MDC one night at midnight, brought him down to Quantico, and for the first time played the tape with Sammy. We all had earphones on. I'll never forget as long as I live that, the playing of the, that December 12th tape in its entirety for Sammy. It's basically an hour tirade against Sammy the Bulgarvano. He calls him the greed-eyed monster, how much he hates Don. Sammy thinks he's greedy. He talks about firing him. More importantly, the recordings included Gotti accusing Gravano of several murders. Gravano was just red. He just wanted to burst. He was ready to explode. He was so upset about his loyal, his wonderful boss, just bad-mouthing behind his back. Sammy's looking down at the transcript, and he takes his headphones and throws them down on the table and says, don't gloat, guys. Don't gloat. This was not only disappointing to Sammy, but humiliating. It was an emotional moment for him. He kind of suspected that was what was there from the snippets of the tape he had heard and the detention hearing. But now he was hearing it. He was hearing it in 3D, to the extent you can hear something in 3D. And he was very upset by it. And then we listened to the rest of the tape. And he explained that that's what he thought was on it, essentially, from the snippets he had heard. He figured that was that conversation was step number one on John Gotti's part to convincing Frank Lacasio that Sammy had to, get, had to be killed and would be killed. At that moment, Gravano decided to break the Mafia's code of silence, Omerta, and betray his boss and the entire Gambino family. And Gravano realized, you know, why should I die in jail for a family I no longer believe in? I want to become a government witness. Yeah, when I got the call, Bruce Mal called me, asked me if I was sitting down. Um, he said, Sammy wants to talk to you. He wants to talk to you about becoming flippant, becoming a witness. And you could have knocked me off that seat with a feather because all of us on the prosecution team, we, you know, we had been in court for almost a year on a bunch of appearances, motions to suppress, disqualification motions. We were in and out of court a lot. We were in their presence a lot. And to a person, we thought the baddest guy in the courtroom was Sammy Gravano. He looked that way. It just he, We never thought for a minute Sammy would flip. I thought John would flip before Sammy would flip. And I really didn't think there was any chance in the world that John would even think about flipping. And uh, it was part of the reason that Sammy flipped, was he knew, he told us this, that even if they beat the case, which was unlikely, because they had a good feel for how strong our evidence was, even if they beat the case, then he'd be in the street and he'd have to kill John. And as Sammy put it to me, if he killed John, he'd have to kill Peter. If he killed Peter, he'd have to kill Jeannie. Kill Jeannie, probably has to kill Junior. The whole thing was going to get way too complicated. He's going to have to kill too many people. That was part of his thinking in terms of reaching out for me and joining our government from his government, as he put it to me. Suddenly, the door to Gotti's entire world was wide open. He told us about a lot of murders that he committed, which we didn't know about. I think there were a total of 19. He gave us more details as to the Castellano homicide exactly uh, how the whole thing went down. He was in the car with Gotti. Outside court, the media circus reached fever pitch, but Gotti's days as the Teflon Don were almost over. The trial was really high drama because 
it was like the number one media event here in New York. So the reporters every day filled up half the courtroom. We all sat with uh, Gotti's minions. Prosecutor Gleason had been waiting for this moment for years. His demeanor in the second trial was as different from his demeanor in the first trial as night is different from day. He was Mr. Cool in the first trial where he had a jury in his pocket, a juror in his pocket. In the second trial, he was like a cornered animal. He was constantly berating me. His favorite gesture when I would look over at him would be he'd make this gesture. He always called me a junkie. And I'd walk past him to go to sidebar, and he would say, your mother's a whore. You're a junkie. He would do this gesture like he was injecting something when I looked at him. It was really ridiculous. But he, was, he had his back to the wall. He knew he was going down. He was, there was no longer a Mr. Cool sitting there. You'd never know it from the press accounts. They saw in him what they wanted to see. But he was panicked. That was when we got a report that there was a contract on my life and on the life of one of the other prosecutors on the team. And we weren't surprised to hear that. He was, um, like a, as I say, a cornered animal. Knew he was going to get convicted. And after Gotti had managed to corrupt the jury during Gleason's first attempt at convicting him, this time they were taking no chances. We had a, not only an anonymous jury, but they were sequestered. So no, they couldn't get to a juror, and a juror couldn't get to them. The trial began, and the tapes were played to a packed courtroom. My goal in presenting the tapes was to just play them and leave out a lot of cases prior to that one involved agents basically interpreting for the jury what was on the tapes. We worked very hard to avoid that and to have the tapes speak for themselves. The tapes were that good. But the prosecution waited before calling their star witness. We planned the, uh, we planned the trial, I and my, the lawyers on my trial team, in the following way. We thought Gravano could be a great witness. He might not be a great witness. So how do you plan that? We, we planned to put him on about three-quarters of the way through the case, the thinking being if he bombed on us and he was terrible, we'd still have another uh, quarter of the case of good evidence to put between Sammy and deliberations, in case he was a terrible witness. We put Sammy on at the beginning of March, start at the end of January. We still have a quarter of our case left, and he blows them away. He was a great witness. And the highlight was when Gravano testified for nine days. He was the best. I've been doing this now, 27 years as a prosecutor and a judge. There was no better witness than Sammy Gravano. He killed him. To the point where, once he got off the stand, my goal was to shut our case down as quickly as we could. That the, I took, he was so good that I took about half of what we had left that we planned to put on after he was off the stand, and I built it into his redirect. The entire Vestola, the conspiracy to murder Corky Vestola, I built into the redirect because he was so good all recognizing that I wanted the jury to get the case as soon as it could after Sammy testified. He was that great a witness. He killed him on cross. He admitted what he had to admit. He didn't diminish his own criminality. He admitted to 16 murders we didn't even know about. He was a lights-out witness, and um, 
Everybody in the courtroom knew that John Gotti was going to be convicted once Sammy Gravano testified, including John Gotti. On April 2nd, 1992, the jury found John Gotti guilty on all counts, including five murders, one of which was his one-time boss, Castellano. You can imagine my feelings, right? This was my second trial, and that first case was a uh, horrific blowout of the government, humiliating, painful. And fast forward five years, and the four-person stands up, and the first verdict they rendered was the verdict on the Castellano homicide. And the uh, four lady of the jury said guilty. And then as each predicate act was, uh, the verdict on each predicate act was delivered on John, they were all guilty. Um, you can imagine this was felt like some vindication for the government generally, for all of us on my trial team, and for me in particular. You know, I worked long and hard in that first case for a couple of years with a seven-month trial, only to have a juror get bought. And, you know, we did the second case well. We did it well. Um, we got a great result, and we couldn't have been happier. Gotti was sentenced to life in prison, spending 23 hours of each day in solitary confinement. Gotti's indiscretions incriminated an entire tier of Gambino captains. The FBI itself could not have handpicked a better candidate to be the head of one of the major mob families in New York than John Gotti. Because of him, most of these captains were arrested, convicted, taken off the street, and they, they'd say, John and his friggin' big mouth, here I am. They'd, they hated this guy. In retrospect, John Gotti was probably the most inept, inefficient mob boss of his generation. He was terrible. It's no question, he never seemed to understand he was running a secret organization, an underground criminal outfit. Uh, and he did everything possible uh, to indict his own self. He had an edict about not talking, about not being bugged. Yet he was bugged all the time. And eventually it did him in. He was an absolute ruination for the mafia. He was so inept, unqualified, and incompetent that he single-handedly not only wrecked the Gambino crime family, he helped implicate other mob bosses in RICO cases. And lastly, and not least, he wrecked his own family. He led to the arrest and indictment of his son, his brothers, and in the long run, uh, he did more to hurt the mafia and his own personal family than any other single fa figure in the history of organized crime. John Gotti died in jail in 2002, aged 61, after serving 10 years of his life sentence. As a mafia don, he had been a complete failure. But to some New Yorkers, Gotti will always be the glamorous mafioso. But he was cast as this, um, this, uh, this dapper Don, this Teflon Don. It was, it was a gloss on him he certainly didn't deserve, but has a lot to do with, you know, the way we as a society treat criminals. You know, it's not just gangsters. It goes back to Jesse James, I guess, and Bonnie and Clyde and Robin Hood and all that stuff. 
We are, to a certain extent, we're fascinated by that. And he, he saw that. He milked it for all he could milk it for, much to the, uh, much to the disappointment of his fellow gangsters who kind of preferred a low profile. Well, I mean, we have a thing, you know, in our culture we have a thing about uh, organized crime, criminals generally, and I've always believed that to a certain extent our society sees in certain types of criminals what they want to see. You know, this is a culture that, at least in my generation, we, we grew up on the Godfather as an image of organized crime. And I believe in my heart that the people who covered our cases wanted to, saw in John Gotti what they wanted to see in him. They wanted to see something, something like Vito Corleone or Jesse James. They wanted to see something um, uh, roguish, uh, as, as something, as some outlaw type. They wanted, I think they wanted to believe that in this in this Cousin Ostra business, there's actually like honor among thieves and a, a code of honor. They very much wanted to see that and they treated him as though he was what they wanted him to be. You know, stoical, um, a stand-up guy. When in reality, anybody who was in the courtroom and really anybody on the street, he was not well thought of by other gangsters at all. But anybody in the courtrooms would see him for what he was. He was just a thug. His legacy, just another boss who killed the previous boss, gets arrested, dies in jail. No more, no less. In the next episode, one of the most famous undercover agents of all time. A fantastic FBI agent, a real hero, and should be seen as a hero by the American public. Someone who actually put his life on hold Every day going to work like that, knowing he could easily be made or betrayed and his life would have been worthless. And yet he did it for years. Uh, did I want to see him get killed? No. Would I rather have him gone to jail? Yeah. Donnie Brasco. Uh, to me, it was just another form of conducting an investigation. Uh, it just so happens it was an undercover investigation. This has been an Audio Boom original. Thanks to HIMSS for their support. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite shows.